0: Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, editor in chief of Runner's World. This week in The Kick, the record for running cross country, as in across the entire country, finally goes down. And a 91 year old lifelong runner accepts an unorthodox challenge from his doctor. Then we go inside your head. Believe it or not, researchers want to know what goes through our minds while we run, and we spoke to one who ranked the topics we ponder most frequently. Amazingly, food did not even crack the top 3. But first my conversation with Lisa Hallett. Lisa is the founder of Wear Blue Run to Remember. Wear Blue is a nonprofit dedicated to honoring through running the service and sacrifice of America's service members. They do this through remembered circles, group runs, and tribute miles in races like the Marine Corps Marathon. Lisa and I talk about her late husband, Army Captain John Hallett, who was killed in action in Afghanistan, about how running gave her and many of her fellow military spouses a sense of control at a time when everything feels completely out of control. And how the organization she co-founded and the rituals that come with it have helped her three young children learn more about and feel closer to their father.
1: Every night before we go to bed, they say, tell me a daddy story. Tell me a daddy story. And it's been seven years. And that's that's a long time. And because of the twist of fate that was our life, I don't have enough stories to tell them. And I am so Mm. grateful that I have the place to go that can help me remember for my children, with my children, when I don't always have the ability to remember on my own.
0: It's a memorable and emotional conversation. You won't want to miss it. Stay with us. Thanks for listening. Lisa Hallett had always used running as a means to cope with the constant change of military life. But in many ways, running became her lifeline after her husband, Army Captain John Hallett, was killed in Afghanistan in 2009. A year after his death, Lisa and fellow Army spouse Aaron O'Connor formed Where Blue Run to Remember. The group began just as a support system for families of deployed soldiers based in Fort Lewis, Washington. But today, it has grown into a nationwide network of running groups with thousands of runners who serve as living memorials, as Lisa puts it. The group has been a powerful force in helping Lisa and many, many people just like her channel her grief and move forward with her life. We first told Lisa's story in the February 2011 issue of Runner's World, and I met Lisa for the first time at the Marine Corps Marathon in 2013. In that race, Wear Blue has one of the most moving on course installations I've ever seen the Wear Blue Mile. Lisa Hallett, it is great to have you on the Runner's World show. Thanks for joining us.
1: I am so excited to be on the call with you today.
0: So before we talk about Wear Blue, the organization that you started, and how big it has become and the impact it has had on so many people's lives, it feels to me like we need to talk a little bit about John, who really was the reason that you started this even before you realized that you were going to start it. So can you tell us a little bit about John?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. John is one of my favorite topics and John John was my best friend. We, John and I grew up together in the same hometown. And our, our friends and our lives overlapped quite a bit. And I had the very fortunate privilege of marrying my best friend. And John had gone to the military academy, and I went to school in Santa Barbara. We had very different college experiences. Um, But we were in love, and John joined the military following his time in school and was just passionate about his career. He loved his soldiers. He loved his work. He loved the physical challenges. And we as a family got to just embark upon military life, which is full of adventure and some amazing people. And we traveled the world, and we had three beautiful children, And we eventually ended in the Pacific Northwest. And um, we found out that John was going to go to southern Afghanistan in the winter of 2009. At the same time, we found out that we were going to have a little girl, our third baby. Mm -hmm. John deployed with his unit to southern Afghanistan in July of that year. And just a few weeks later... Our daughter Heidi was born, and it was, it was an exciting and, and overwhelming time for us. It was the first time that American forces had been in southern Afghanistan, and so Heidi was born. I had a couple quick conversations with John, and then they pushed out to an area that American forces had never been, and we really lost communication for a few weeks, and then I remember I had gone to this military family meeting. And I was so proud of myself. It was the first time I was out of the house after having a baby. And um, I was really proud of myself for getting more involved in the unit. And that was something that John had always kind of nudged me into doing. And I I sat right in the front of the classroom, and I had Heidi with me. And we have three children, Jackson, who was three at the time, and Bryce was one. And they were the babysitter. And I spread out my papers, and I felt a tap on my shoulder and it was the rear detachment commander Frankie and um, Frankie said that I needed to come with him and I remember being pretty flip and I was like what's going on and he said no no you need to come with me so I scooped up my papers and Heidi was in her little car seat and I picked her up And I had no idea what was going on. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, John's been hurt. John's been hurt. I'm thinking, you know, a a leg, an injury. And we had to walk across this big grass field. And he takes me into the battalion classroom. And there are two gentlemen waiting for me. And they're wearing these green suits. And they have a white piece of paper. And... The gentleman on the right, he he reads the words on that paper. He says, The Secretary of Defense regrets to inform you that your husband, Captain John Hallett, is believed to have perished in the fires. And he continues, but I stopped listening because there's this word he said, believed. And I have mm-hmm. these babies at home and three, one and three weeks old. They had to be wrong. But they weren't wrong. Um, John had been killed on his way home from a Goodwill mission on August 25, 2009. And he was killed with three other soldiers, Ron, Corey, and Dennis. And my world was completely upside down.
0: It, the vehicle that they were riding in was struck by an IED. Is that right?
1: Yes. They were traveling in a striker on their way home from a Goodwill mission.
0: So, obviously, that wasn't in the plan.
1: Oh, gosh, no. And I think in military life, you you know that risk is inherent. It, it can happen to any of our families who volunteer to serve our country, but you can't confront that as a r- genuine reality, or these deployments, these separations would be absolutely unbearable. So it was a known risk, but not a risk that would happen to us. And... I I had no idea what I was going to do. Chan was John was my light. I was just blessed and I know I just knew that I was so fortunate to have an extraordinary marriage with someone I loved so much and who loved me so much. I didn't I didn't think I would ever escape that hollow loss that came with losing him.
0: And one of the things that you turn to to attempt to process it and grieve was, was running. Did you and John run together before he was deployed for that last time?
1: Well, um, John humored me and he would slowly jog next to me as I was really diving into my, my beast mode runs. But John was a swimmer and I was a runner, a very slow runner, but running was definitely how I had always manage the challenges of military life. So when John went to Ranger School, I ran my first marathon. And when we PCS'd or, or had a permanent change of station and were in a new community, I would sign up for my next race. And so it was something that John knew really gave me grace and sanity in my life. And it was a way for me to remain kind of healthy moving forward, despite the challenges that were a part of, of being a military spouse.
0: To say nothing of finding the energy and sanity to raise three children.
1: Yes. When John passed away, running became a lifeline in a way that was deeper and more needed than ever before in my life. And Absolutely. I had three children under three, two of whom were in diapers. I, it was The house was overwhelming. Everything was overwhelming. But at the end of the day, as long as I had running, there was at least one thing that was tangible. And I could say, if nothing else, I ran to the corner. I ran around the block. I ran a mile. And that number grew. And the more that I was able to hold on to the running and the accomplishments that running provided me, I think the more in control I felt I was in my life. And it really gave me kind of the strength and the tools that I needed through running and those tangible accomplishments, to be a successful mom and to be present and to have the space to navigate grief. And running gave me the space that I needed to separate from the craziness of, of single parenting um, into the space that I needed to grieve and remember and really understand that this loss was real and permanent and a part of our lives.
0: In those early days after John's death, if I'm right, sometimes you ran with the kids pushing him in a a triple jogger. Sometimes you ran alone. Sometimes you ran with maybe a few other running partners. Is that right?
1: Yes. It was, the military community is amazing. And when John passed away, well, even before John passed away, when I had a baby and John was simply deployed at a just a huge outpouring of support and love for military families. And then when John passed away, it continued. And I remember standing in my my living room, a dear friend, Erin O'Connor, and she's she's holding two huge trays of pasta. And she says, whatever you need, I'm here for you. We're going to run through this. And she was there for me, and we did run through this. And in that year that John was killed and those with Corey, Ron, and Dennis, we lost 41 soldiers. So as an entire community, we were confronted with, with loss and fear and heartbreak. And so Aaron and I really harnessed our, our love of running and all the sanity it gave us and shared that with, with the community here on home soil. And so those runs that were sometimes by myself became more often with my fellow military spouses. And we used running as a way to connect, to grieve, to grow stronger, and to remember.
0: So did that happen organically, or was there a moment where you or the two of you made a conscious choice to try to expand what you were finding in running and helping you through your own grief?
1: Those runs and this this community definitely happened organically. We we ran together, we felt better after we ran. We invited more women to join us, and it, it grew. But as it grew and it started to take shape, Erin and I recognized our need to to formalize our effort, and so we called ourselves Run to Remember, and we invited our fellow runners to wear our husbands blue physical training shirts and we created a consistent community. Every Saturday we would gather, we'd say the names of the 40 service members in our in our unit, our, our friends who had been killed, and then we ran. And it really became a place that gave us strength uh, and a sense of control over our lives during a time that felt very, very out of control.
0: I know a big part of this is ritual. Can can you just explain what the ritual is, wh- when you meet and what you do exactly before you start running?
1: Yes. Um, today in communities across the country, every week runners gather, we circle, we call up the names of fallen service members, and then we push off on the steps of a run. And it's meant to be a place where service members families of the fallen and civilians can all share the names and the stories of american service members who've given their lives for our country and i think for me one of my biggest fears as as a gold star family member or or someone who has lost a loved one in combat is that he'll be forgotten my best Mm -hmm. friend the most important part of my life will just become a page of history but john and all of the men and women who who who've died for our country are so much more than a page of history and for me personally the, the circle of remembrance how we start our runs it it is so personal and there are the weeks where my daughter heidi wants to know where her pictures are with her daddy and And we don't have any because Heidi never got to meet her daddy. And I show up to a circle and I am filled with so much gratitude because even though we don't have those pictures, we have a community who is committed to remembering, not just for themselves, but for my family. And so that Heidi can walk into a place and know that her father's sacrifice is appreciated and that he will be remembered. And for every picture that she doesn't have, there is a story out there waiting to be told and shared. So it's just extraordinary to have this space and the reverence to call it the name, evoke the stories, and then to have the life of a run. So you say the names and then you push off and, and you're able to shift gears from that needed and purposeful, somber remembrance into the celebration of life. And nothing is more vibrant than the steps of a run. I mean, ask anybody at mile 18 of a marathon. You couldn't feel any more alive at that point.
0: <laughs> what is it about the physical act of running, do you think, that helps people process grief and, or sadness or connect with other people who are going through some of the same things?
1: I, I think about that a lot. I think that there is something very beautiful and amazing about visiting a memorial, the Vietnam War Memorial, the Korean War Memorial, the Vietnam wall. And you go to these memorials and they're powerful and you remember them, but you are a visitor at these memorials. When you are running and you have someone's name on your lips, their stories in your heart, their images on your back, you have literally become the memorial. And, um, by running, we are able to become a living memorial to fallen service members. And we're not stopping and visiting the memorial, we are belonging to the memorial.
0: A living, breathing, running memorial, I love that. What a great concept and beautiful. Uh, memorial Day is a very big day for families of, in the military and also for Wear Blue. What happens on Memorial Day with, with you and the group?
1: So people head to our website, and they commit a, a distance that is meaningful to them, and then push off on the steps of a run. And our goal each year is to ensure that every service member who has made the ultimate sacrifice in the global war on terror has a distinct runner who is commanded with their memory and legacy to honor with their miles. So we provide a hero match to runners across the country on Memorial Day. and. Um, they enter their miles, and we in turn provide them the story of that hero. And it's powerful because on Memorial Day around the world, there are thousands of people in blue who are ensuring that men and women are remembered. But I think even more, it's a chance for the families of the fallen throughout generations of service to know that they are not alone in their grief, and that they have a grateful nation, who stands and is literally running with them in remembrance and in support of all that they have given.
0: Another big day for you is race day at the Marine Corps Marathon. In fact, the last time that you and I saw each other was when I ran Marine Corps a few years ago. And the race includes what's called the Blue Mile, and it's right at about the halfway point of the marathon. And I have to say it's one of the most... Uh, memorable and affecting things I've ever done in running. Can you describe what that Blue Mile is like, what it what it sounds like, what it looks like, what happens there?
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, the Marine Corps Marathon is our national race, and so we have about 10 races across the country throughout the course of the year in which we build our Wear Blue Mile. But at the Marine Corps Marathon, it is our biggest mile, and it is exactly right there, Hands Point, about halfway through the course. And the Wear Blue Mile is a tribute mile to fallen service members. So we line the course with faces of the fallen tribute posters. And so it's the image, um, the name of the service member, the date of death, and the age of that hero. And those posters flank both sides of the course and so it's extraordinary on race day you have 30,000 runners passing through the Wear Blue Mile and they really have a chance to touch a poster, say a name, remember a face and let these heroes become a part of the drive to not just finish the race but to finish and overcome the challenges in their own lives But this purposeful pause in the faces of the fallen tribute posters are followed by full-sized American flags lining both sides of the course. So this year we'll have over 300 American flags held by the friends, family members, fellow service members of these American heroes. And it is meant to move from this pause of remembrance into this fierce celebration of country for everything that they lived and died for and we use these flags, this this celebration and love of country, to really drive the runners through the next steps of their course.
0: Well, it certainly does that, I can tell you from firsthand experience. And, you know, from the runner's point of view, this tunnel of photographs and American flags, and just like before your runs, there's this, there's this reverence. It, the silence is almost deafening. And you're running along halfway through a marathon. It's windy out there on Haines Point. It's not easy. And it is so awe-inspiring. And part of that is as a runner, as I was running through there, I knew that the people that I was looking at along the way were family members and friends of the people who had been killed. And that is just so incredibly powerful but you're normally, I know sometimes you run the Blue Mile and you have probably many times, but often you are there on the Blue Mile, not as a runner, but as someone who is um, standing by a photo of, of John and, and a flag that goes with John's photo. What, what, what are you seeing in the faces of the runners that go by and what kind of interactions have you had with runners who, who are going through the Blue Mile?
1: It's interesting. I always think I'll be immune to the Wear Blue Mile. We have now, since 2010, been on 27 different race courses and honored over 3,600 fallen service members. But every time I stand on that mile, I am struck with the weight of this responsibility to honor and remember. And so each American flag is held by someone connected to these service members and it bears the name of a fallen service member on a black streamer and so when I hold John's flag there there's a weight to that flag and it, it is different. I'm not just picking up a flag off the street but I am holding a very powerful memorial to my husband and as the runners pass through they recognize it. Um, I'm always struck when the elite runners, I mean, speeding through, trying to win the race, take off their hat, take the time to put their hand on their heart, but show their gratitude. And I, I'm so moved by that. But you'll see men and women who are unaware of the mile approaching, just tears down their face seeing battle buddies from, from years past. And in that sense of, of loss and grief and country and service, people are very moved by the mile.
0: So about seven years on after John's death, how is life? How are your kids in particular? How has Wear Blue affected their memories of their father?
1: Seven years after John has passed away, we are so much healthier and happier than I ever imagined we would be. And I remember those first days after John was killed. I thought I'm I'm never going to know Joy again. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. But I think a huge part of our gift and our ability to move forward is because of Wear Blue. Because every week I know that I have the space, the place, the community to remember John. And being able to remember John gives me the gift and the, the confidence to be able to move forward in the rest of my life. And my kids are so much like John. And every week they ask to go to Wear Blue, and we go to our local community run, and they proudly call out their daddy's name. And I think the gift of Wear Blue is that when they are calling out his name, they're hearing others call it his name, and as the military community ebbs and flows and moves in and out, they have been gifted with so many amazing stories of their father. And I think so many people want to remember John, and they want to share share John's stories with his children, but they don't know exactly how, you know, do I just call her up, do I write a note, and so we have a built-in community where it's expected to share stories, and it's been amazing to see, especially the oldest, you know, run with different members of, of John's community from West Point to men and women with whom he served, and have the space to know who their father was. Every night before we go to bed, they say, Tell me a daddy story, tell me a daddy story. And it's been seven years. I mean, that's that's a long time. And because of the twist of fate that was our life. I don't have enough stories to tell them. And I am Hmm. so grateful that I have the place to go that can help me remember for my children, with my children, when I don't always have the ability to remember on my own.
0: Yeah. What do you see in the kids that remind you of John? I'm especially curious about Heidi because unfortunately Heidi never met John because she was only three weeks old when he was killed.
1: My oldest, Jackson, is, to my chagrin, just like his daddy. I mean, <laughs> he <laughs> keeps me to task to be on time. He's like, Mom, we got to go. Five, we're late. We should have left five minutes ago. He organized, <laughs> and they all, thank goodness, have John's um, wit and intelligence, which is a blessing for them. And um, Heidi has John's passion, and John had a very determined sense of right and wrong, and when he did something... He did it fully, and his, his work ethic was unrivaled. And I walk into Heidi's room, and she has lists on her wall. Her father loved to make lists, but she has lists on her wall of homework assignments that she has created for herself and is keeping herself on task and, and notes, and it is, it is John. It is John's desire to do and be his best just blossoming in Heidi. And I know that she's going to do great things one day.
0: And how about you, Lisa? How, how has your life changed? When, when we first told your story in Runner's World in the February 2011 issue, you said, uh, and you, you were talking about running specifically, but you said, I'm John's physical representation now. Do you still feel that way?
1: In, in many ways, but I feel also that my identity is expanded. And I, I remember in those first days, all I could recognize was I'm John's widow. My husband died, John died, John died, John died. And, and it consumed me. And so absolutely, I did as feel as though as John's representation. And I still feel that. And I feel my children are that as well. And I took our vows very seriously. Two shall become one. And it's such a blessing that John is a part of me. And so I absolutely feel charged and responsible to live a life in a way that would make John proud. But I also feel like over the past seven years that I've grown um, messy. It's been messy how I've grown and, and who I am, but that starting to recognize and build my identity yes, as as John's widow, yes, as the parent of my children, the mother, but also as Lisa Hallett and somebody distinct and unique who has been touched by tragedy, but it has also had the blessing and the inspiration to be married to John and that there is a very exciting world out there for me and so many opportunities for me to tackle um, just as me.
0: Any big goals on your horizon right now?
1: I am going to do Ironman Louisville in just a few days. (laughs) And I'd like to finish. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter how many times I do these races. Every time I swim, it's like, don't drown. Don't fall off the bike. And just keep running. But I do. I want to get faster every time. I want to be stronger every time. And every time I get out there on the race course, no matter... Whether it's a 5K or 140.6, I want to find out what I am capable of and how hard I can push myself. What am I very much capable of achieving?
0: What was that first Ironman experience like for you?
1: I did. My first Ironman was Ironman Canada. It was in Whistler, and it was on the four-year anniversary of John's death and I was terrified. And I remember standing next to my friend Elizabeth at that starting line, and I, before every race, I find some person, and I just have to tell them, my husband died, and I am I'm doing this race for him. And so I told Elizabeth, I said, John died, and I don't get to bring him home, and I have to, I have to confront that today. And I cried, and she cried. And there was this poor man standing next to us, and he said, I'm a sympathetic crier, and he cried with us. Um, <laughs> but I felt strong in that I felt so vulnerable, and I was terrified on that swim. And Nothing scares me more than getting in the water with 2,000 strangers <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. swimming. And I remember each stroke, I just said the name of someone who loved me and loved John and believed in me. And, and the, it was never very complex. It went, you know, John's mom, John's dad, my mom, my children, and I said their names over and over. And then all of a sudden, I found myself saying the names of these men and women my, my wear blue community. It was Rachel, Aaron, Jessica, and these men and women who had become my family and believed in me. And so even though there weren't 2,000 wear blue people on the course with me, I knew that I had wear blue community behind me and in me really driving me forward and no matter how slowly I finished that race I was going to finish that race I was going to understand that John died but I was also really going to be empowered to move forward and live in the aftermath of that loss
0: what do you mean when you say you felt strong by feeling vulnerable
1: I think that when John first died I remember driving Jackson to preschool and a song came on the radio and I started crying. And I had this little three-year-old in the back seat and he says, Mommy, stop crying. You're scaring me. And I quickly learned that grief is very scary for children and that I had to find a balance between being honest with this loss and showing my children how we grieve and how it's healthy to grieve but also making it a safe environment so that they can live a life in a world that is full of joy. And I think that when John died, I became very guarded. And racing is the space where I can drop my guard and I can be vulnerable and I could admit that John died and it is hard and I miss him. And sometimes I am sad. But in admitting that, that grief, that loss, that hurt, being vulnerable, it's like touching the bottom of a swimming pool. I have something I can push off mm-hmm. from. And so I grow stronger in admitting these hurts that are in my life because admitting them enables me to move forward from them.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I think is most interesting about Wear Blue is that it's not just military families it's also civilians anyone is welcome right yes I'm curious about your point of view on something you know we're we're so polarized as a country in so many ways we see it all over the place we're heading into a presidential election that is incredibly polarized there seems to be so much conflict and even hatred in our society these days in so many ways You also said that we have a grateful nation. So, I guess my question is are are we as polarized as we seem?
1: I think, you know, America is made up of people and the military is made up of people, and then we have government. But that at the heart of it, we have, we truly do have a nation who is grateful for the men and women who serve us. And that the reality is we have over 150,000 troops stationed in bases outside of the United States, and we still have 15,000 troops actively deployed today in Afghanistan, Iraq, and over 20 nations in the Middle East. And that even though it seems very polarized, we still have 1% of our nation serving our country. And I think we really do have 99% of our country who recognize that these men and women volunteer and serve and leave their families.
0: So in closing, Lisa, I wanna ask you to look back uh, over the past seven years, where Blue has grown so much and has had such an incredible impact on thousands of people's lives. Tell me about some of the most vivid people or stories that really stand out in your mind, maybe people that you've met as Wear Blue has grown. And just tell me what it's like to be here today and to see what Wear Blue has become. You didn't necessarily even intend to start an organized running group.
1: (laughs) It was definitely not the original plan. I love the people in Wear Blue. These are my people, my, my community, my friends, my family. And I have been so fortunate to meet amazing people and and witness just incredible courage. And last year at the 2015 Marine Corps Marathon, Wear Blue launched the Gold Star Race program. And in this program, we provide the gift of of running. And community to families of fallen service members to give them the tools to not only heal but become empowered in the aftermath of tragedy and so we, we fly them out to the race we train them we get them their running shoes we give them their wear blue shirt and then of course we build a tribute installation on the wear blue mile on their race course and this past June at rock and roll San Diego I had the privilege of meeting Heather Wooderson And Heather's son, Specialist Matthew Walker, he was deployed. And while he was deployed, in her last letter to Matt, she said, I'm going to run the Rock and Roll St. Louis Marathon. And he writes back and says, I'm so proud of you. This is great. And Matthew didn't come home from that deployment. So this past June 5th on the two-year anniversary of his death. Heather Wooderson ran her first marathon and mm. to see her charging through 26.2 miles just her heart heavy with memories and loss and to hear the stories here's an extraordinary woman who who really chose running and community to become a life force in her life to move forward and at the same race Um, Katya Kelly and her husband Nigel was killed in Afghanistan and he was he was the athlete in her family and she was hungry for change and Katya never a runner I believe she said she hated running really embraced running and I My favorite moment, I think one of my favorite all-time wear blue moments is at the finish line of the Rock and Roll San Diego Marathon, and she has just finished 26.2 miles, and she says to me, she said, I thought I would cry. I thought I would be sad, and she said, but I am just too proud of myself, and she has this huge grin on her face. Running has always been my lifeline, but here are these men and women who running was not a part of their lives. I mean, so much that they hated it, and they've embraced it, and it's become a part of their culture. And it, it floors me every time.
0: Well, Lisa Hallett, you have built something pretty extraordinary. And you've helped a lot of people. And perhaps more importantly, you've been an incredible role model and example for your three kids. It's been great to talk with you again. Thanks a lot for joining us. And good luck in that Ironman this weekend. And we will see you at a race very soon.
1: Excellent. I'm taking luck, prayers, and smoke signals.
0: <laughs> For my full conversation with Lisa Hallett, go to runnersworld.com/ audio and if you're curious, despite that head cold that you may have heard in her voice during our conversation, Lisa did finish that Iron Man her fifth in 11 hours 58 minutes, 26 seconds pretty damn impressive) So, what do you think about when you run? I know I tend to bounce around between what I'm going to eat when I get back, stresses at work, how I might find an extra hour tonight to read that novel that I've been reading for six months, and various other distractions. Sometimes I just think of nothing at all. But it turns out our random ponderings might have scientific value. A group of researchers at California State University have been studying runners' thoughts by asking them to talk into tape recorders as they run. Contributor Claire Trageser has the details on what those researchers have found. Claire also reached out to a few of her fellow runners to see how their own mental ramblings matched up with science.
2: My mind is kind of skipping around and jumping around, looking at the trees, thinking about how dry it is because there's a drought. Stephanie Donahue is running the streets in Boston after work. And also thinking about how much longer I want to go versus how much longer I think I should go because they're not on the same team today. She's agreed to help me with a little test. She set a few alarms to go off during her run. When each one beeps, she stops and records what she's thinking about.
3: Uh, I was just thinking
2: about this young adult novel that I'm reading and <laughs> how there's a protagonist, obviously a young woman who like does magic, and if I could be a young woman doing magic and kicking ass, that's what I was thinking about. And I'm
3: not ashamed.
2: Her recordings are a pretty good example of where the mind goes on a run. It's something Ashley Sampson has been studying.
3: Could we get someone to you know, to do this protocol throughout the, the duration of a long run? And can we really capture, you know, what is it that people really think about when they're running?
2: She's an assistant professor at California State University in Northridge, where she researches sports psychology. She's also an ultramarathoner herself. Ashley set out to find what people think about when they run. Her experiment wasn't about voyeurism. Understanding runners' thoughts might help experts like her teach athletes how to better focus when the going gets tough. She was also one of her first test subjects.
3: During the time that I was actually training for the 50-miler, so I had plenty of long runs to, uh, to, to experiment with. She thought mostly about work, her pace, and food. You know, when you know that you're, you're, you're almost done, you start to think about, okay, what am I going to eat after this? You know, where do I want to go eat? And so then you start, you know, like for me, I would build, um, like, okay, what, what kind of pizza do I want? For her study,
2: 10 marathoners recorded their thoughts continuously during a seven mile run. Ashley then analyzed all the running related thoughts to see which were the most common. Number one on the
3: list? What's called pace and distance. And so, as you would obviously think, you know, if someone's on a training run, they're going to be paying attention to how far they've gone, how far they have left to go. Um, Looking at their pace, you know, making sure that they're on track with whatever their particular goal was that day.
2: I know I get fixated on both of those things, which made me wonder, are my fellow runners and I the same as those in Ashley's study? So I asked a few of them to set some alarms on their phones to go off during their runs. When the alarms beeped, they recorded their thoughts.
4: My pace was off from what I expected it to be, but when is it ever what I want it to be?
2: That's Chris Anselmo running on a hot morning in San Diego. He was definitely thinking about speed and distance.
4: Come on, get up this hill. Whatever you do, don't stop. Just keep going. Come on. All right, slow down a little bit, but don't stop. You can't stop in a race. The clock won't stop in a race.
2: The second most common thought for Samson's research subjects? Probably not surprisingly, it was pain and discomfort. I found this in my group of runners as well.
3: I'm thinking about how there might be a rock in my shoe. I'm thinking about how my sciatica is
2: hurting me. I'm thinking about when I can be done. Ashley says the third most common thought among her runners was mental strategies.
3: So things like, okay, like just get you know just keep hold this pace so you get to that tree and then you can, you know slow down a little bit.
2: For example, my own recording volunteer, Alicia Temby. I was just thinking about on my run about how I was about to catch up to this
3: chick, but then my alarm went off. Now I'm real far behind. Follow, And that also was, before her, was a dude with really long legs who breezed past me. I'm attributing that to his long legs. Um, as you can see, I get a little competitive on the boardwalk.
2: And the final most common thought on Ashley's list was the environment. I heard a lot of that too. Whether it was noticing pretty scenery.
4: And I, I see this girl off in the distance. She is dressed like she's going to the Del Mar races or something, I mean, really fancy, you know, I mean, looking really good. And she has one of these big hats and I'm like, what is going on here?
2: Or complaining about the weather.
3: Thinking about how it feels like the hottest summer we've ever had and how annoying it is that I have to run in like a a visor and sunglasses and all this stuff because otherwise I get so much
2: sweat in my eyes, and I'm so uncomfortable. So Ashley's four most common running-related thoughts were pace and distance, then pain, then mental strategies for staying motivated, and finally the environment. One thing I was surprised to find was missing, food. It certainly came up a lot in Ashley's personal recordings and in the recordings I got. I really want mac and cheese with zucchini noodles for dinner tonight. I was just thinking about the popcorn, pretzels, and hummus that I snacked on
1: before my run. I am right now thinking about dinner because I am so exhausted from this run and you know it seems like pure humidity um, that I just can't get my brain to think about anything else and I'm just thinking about a big glass of wine. Ashley says food did
2: come up it was just lower on the list. It fell into a category she calls the logistics of running, meaning what runners need to do so their runs go smoothly.
3: What do they need to be eating while they're on that run, you know, in terms of like, oh, it's been 30 minutes, I should have a gel. Um, But then also thinking about, okay, I've only got four miles left and then I can go get a hamburger.
2: Another category is what she calls social and occupational, meaning working through problems at work, in relationships, or making plans while on the run. Like what Mike Daly was doing on a recent 10-miler in San Diego.
0: Thinking a lot about success, how we define that, and happiness, trying to, you know, achieve that or find that.
2: Daly says a lot of his best thinking is done on runs.
0: Are we taking ourselves too seriously, I guess? Um, you know, put a lot of pressure on myself to... Uh, you know, try to achieve success and be happy. Um, but sometimes the sacrifice. I think of maybe taking things too seriously, taking myself too seriously, and that takes the fun out of it.
2: As Ashley and I found, a lot of our thoughts are just completely random. Funny, profound, or just weird.
0: Always wondering why the Ben and Jerry's don't have the chunky monkey. They want you to buy that big thing, and all I want is a little scoop, little taste, this player to reward myself for all this hard running.
1: Did the 17-year cicadas in New York unearth themselves on the same day as the 17-year cicadas in, let's say, Hudson Valley, Ohio? How do they know that it's been 17 years? Imagine if humans had that kind of timing. Imagine the productivity that would yield. From
2: focusing on pace to pondering ice cream, Ashley says there's no such thing as bad running thoughts. There's just better ways to think through challenges. She's using this research in her psychology work with athletes. She says collecting runners' thoughts shows that we aren't always upbeat, but that's okay. When you're feeling like crap, what matters isn't that you have crappy thoughts. It's how you deal with them. And it's those mental deal-with-it strategies she's hoping to instill in athletes.
3: And so instead of just saying, like, you can do it, you know, you can be, okay. focus on your breathing, focus on your turnover, you know, think about your arm swing, those types of things. So it becomes more of like a practical, you know, pragmatic type of thing versus just this sort of positive, you know, you can do it, rainbows and puppies.
2: Although if you want to think about rainbows and puppies or magic powers or what you're eating for dinner tonight, that's okay too.
0: Thanks again to all the runners who shared their running thoughts with us. There were too many names to mention here, but you can find everyone who helped us out at runnersworld.com audio. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox.
4: Getting things started this week, Brian, there's this really heartwarming story out of Texas. What can you tell us more about that?
5: Yeah, a small fun event happened last week in Plano, Texas. A 91-year-old, his name is Tony Tadeo. He had surgery to replace a heart valve in January, and his doctor decided, hey, you're a lifelong runner. I want you to rehab and get back to your life as a runner. So he challenged him to a 5K at some point this year, and they did it last week. So this doctor sounds awesome. Yeah. he's, He's literally like comes in, and he goes, hey, Tony. Let's run a 5K. Yeah. So Dr. Michael Mack, he was the chief surgeon at the Heart Hospital in Baylor, Plano. That was his idea. And it really did help Tony. And the other thing that helped is he pushed for a non-invasive surgery to do the heart valve transplant. So Tony was in surgery for an hour or so instead of an open heart surgery. He was home the next day running two weeks later. Wow. And then, you know, once he got back to full strength and got through like a very hot summer, down in Texas, they decided to do a race in the fall. And that's when they got together last week. So how did Tony and my new favorite doctor do? Well, they did the 5K course with, you know, all the colleagues at the hospital, the nurses who helped Tony and Dr. Mac throughout the whole thing. And, uh, you know, going forward, they want to continue to do 5Ks at least once a year together until Tony's 100. That's his goal. And he wants to do the Boston Marathon when he's 100. The other thing that's awesome, Tony, he had this great quote that every time he runs, he feels like a lion. (laughs) I love that. Awesome job to Tony and the doc. Okay. And I'm glad we're talking about this now. We're recording on a Tuesday. You were covering something in New York City on Monday. We actually had a tweet last night hoping that this episode would include this story and here it is yes the fans are clamoring tell us um why you're in new york okay this is actually just an amazing story an amazing feat and it's actually a, not to butt in but it's a feat we've kind of been looking at for over a year now with and really 36 years yeah as so, something we didn't think could be broken i know so
4: ultra runner pete Kastelnik ran across the country And he did it 3,067 miles in 42 days, 6 hours, and 30 minutes. That is a new world record for the fastest run across America. He shattered the mark. And when we say shattered, what was the old mark? So literally shattered the mark. So the old mark was 46 days eight hours and 36 minutes and who held that record and that was held by frank giannino jr He's, he was a shoe salesman he said it in 1980 and the record stood for this long not for lack of trying mm-hmm. like there's been a lot of um pretty well-known ultraners who've gone after it marshall ulrich who mm-hmm. actually wrote a book about it charlie ingle who was actually friends <laughs> with pete he was there yeah and and he helped run pete in the last 40 miles um and, you know, there have been three other attempts this year as well that all have
5: failed. So we've talked about a few of them on the kick or human race exa- our, yeah, other yeah. podcast. So let's put this 42 days into perspective. Like what what does that take to do this type of feat?
4: OK, so just raw numbers to get us started. He started on September 12th at San Fran- San Francisco's City Hall. And he averaged 72 miles a day on foot, roughly a 9 to 10 minute per mile pace. He did two runs a day, got up at three, did like 40 miles Mm -hmm. in the morning. Big breakfast at that point. Huge (laughs) breakfast. I heard he maxed out at 17,000 calories a day. Okay. Yeah, uh, a lot of food. And then he would run 30 miles into the afternoon, early evening, and then get up, do it all over again,
5: six weeks in a row. The other thing that stood out to me, he only had, like, one off day, like, in the first week, and only two days where he did less than 72 miles. Yeah, day seven, he had to take a day off because he was uh, injured. He basically just beat up from Mm -hmm. um, the
4: heat in Nevada is where he took that day off. And so he took that off day. The next day, he put in 69 miles. No other day did he run less than 70 miles. And... One of the mo- more amazing stats, I thought, was that um, I guess this would be Monday morning at midnight. He ran 87 miles to finish the record. And that was his longest day. Longest day. He came um, through New Jersey, across the George Washington Bridge, south into Manhattan, and he finished on the steps of City Hall. And um, I actually was able to capture some audio of the moment that he got there.
0: Yeah! <laughs>
2: How are you feeling, Pete? I am not running back. Oh!
0: This was an out-and-back course. Yeah, right. Oh, uh, it's.
5: Nice. I, uh, I think it was more me- mentally and emotionally
1: challenging than-, than physical. So
5: so a huge accomplishment, but you can tell he sounds exhausted by the yeah. end of this. How How is he going to celebrate after um, all of this? Like, what do you do to celebrate after... <laughs> 42 days and 72 miles a day. Well, funny you should ask. I, I asked him that, and here's what he had to say.
0: Uh, you know, I was having a beer after every night for the first, like, five or six nights, and then I decided that wasn't a good idea anymore, so it's been over a month since I've had a beer, so. <laughs> 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 <I'm> a, <laughs> yeah, That's right. Maybe not here, but uh, sometime tonight.
5: And you mentioned the previous record. What well, the previous record holder was actually there yesterday as well. Yeah, this was really cool. So Frank um, decided
4: to kind of surprise everyone, and he he owns a running store about an hour away. He came to the steps of City Hall. He brought this gold baton. Um, so he he passed the baton, and we just—it's amazing. So congrats to Pete once again. And you're gonna try
5: next year, Kit?
4: Yes already got uh
5: got my legs under me. You want to be in my sport van? Yes. Okay. I think just a one person support van will do. Yep. First can... we need to get the van. Yeah, you can drive the RV. Okay, sounds good. Okay, and just to wrap up the kick, um you know, it's one of my favorite holidays coming up, Halloween. I'm finishing up my candy corn gross. despite how gross it is um but we've been doing the past couple years we take a look at the top halloween costume trends but because we're runner's world we want to take that little spin on it we know you might be doing a race so we wanted to give you advice on what would be a good halloween costume to run in and what might not be a great option
4: yeah so we talked to two world record holders in the costume wearing division during yeah. races so there's a camille heron who she actually holds a female marathon record while wearing a Spider-Man costume in Mm 248.51. And we also talked to Ian Sharman, holds the Marathon World Record dressed as Elvis in 242.52. Yeah.
5: I know they love talking about this because when I reached out to them to do it again, they're like, oh, yeah, it's that time of year. So <laughs> they, they 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 love for us to just, like, see what we're sending them yeah. each year. Okay, so let's dive into some of these costumes. You can usually look toward um, movies, popular movies or just kind of movies that were big during the summer to be a good costume option one that stood out ghostbusters the all-female cast so that's a good option for females and even guys like i remember being a ghostbuster as maybe a five-year-old
4: okay but they're like backpack blaster and i probably still have my backpack
5: thing in my closet at home so i could just pull that out
4: running with that might be a challenge. Just keep it light, I think, right? Yeah,
5: you want it to be snug. You might want some padding if there's going to be chafing on the back. So, well, if you yeah. were as a kid, I'm sure yours is going to be pretty snug. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't grown that much. Okay, so obviously very topical.
4: Um, we talked about two other costumes, um,
5: Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean— I. Re- Let's we're not going to dive into a political debate here in the final few weeks. Um, the one thing that I think is good advice for either of these costumes. I mean, I just want to say it's the best costume. That costume's <laughs> going to be a winner. They're going to make Halloween great again. Yes. But um, if you're going to be either person, I really suggest and the elite runners here do too, you should wear headphones. You're going to you're going to get heckled one way or the other. Okay so if you go to our show page runnersworld.com audio you'll find a link to our list of Halloween costumes and if and if you're going to race as something really unique I, I want to hear about it so do I send it to rwaudio at rodale.com um, I'm still trying to decide what I'm going to wear so if you have any suggestions just tweet it up. you can't just be a ghost again kid, kid.
4: it's easy it's cheap throw a sheet over my head it's aerodynamic during races and I get a bunch of candy So, but isn't it awkward with the glasses
5: over the sheet uh, no it looks great <laughs> well Kit thanks for coming down doing a kick and thanks for going to New York yesterday to catch up with Pete and capturing that really awesome record as always Brian have a great day
0: that's it for this week's show thanks to everyone who has left us ratings and reviews we really appreciate it and trust me we read everyone to try to make the show better I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Claire Trageser. Next week, an interview with Theo Rossi. The former Sons of Anarchy actor has quite a bit going on these days. He stars in the recently released Netflix series Luke Cage. His movie Lowriders comes out next year, and he's about to run his first marathon, the New York City Marathon. Yeah, you know, the two things that we all chase in life is time and efficiency. And when I had to lose all this weight for this film, you know, I was playing this like crystal meth addict. And I really wanted to like kind of get into this body of, you know, what somebody would look like and feel like, you know, in this in this emaciated kind of state. I had to like, you know, I had a diet where I was eating like, not that I recommend this to anyone, but I was eating like, you know, eight, nine hundred calories a day. And I had like no sugar, but then also I had to find a way. I was doing so much research. I was like, okay, what's the most efficient way to burn calories in the shortest amount of time? Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.